men, we have to have the conversations about Mennonites also. We have to have the conversations about different types of Anabaptists. Right, because everybody just assumes when you see a head covering that or a plain looking person, they're Amish. Right. Yeah. So he was like, he didn't know what Mennonites were, but he knew what Amish were. <laughs> oh my. morning everybody today we are gathered to discuss these wonderful booklets called the sacred subjects and it says do not open for parents only um i have been privileged to be joined by Lori and stephanie if y'all would like to say good morning whatever how y'all doing good morning i'm here <laughs> I, I am looking forward to this conversation, <laughs> despite the icky subject matter. It is a very icky subject matter. I will give you that. Good How morning. about you? Good morning. I am, you know, looking forward to it as much as one can um, on a Saturday. <laughs> Usually a, a morning preserved for, you know, relaxation from a busy week. Here we are. This doesn't feel like relaxation to you? It's <laughs> <laughs> important, though. I mean, but have you read this booklet? I mean, unfortunately, yes. Oh, boy. I have to confess that uh, I flaked out and have not um, ordered these items from the proper authorities yet. However, <laughs> um, uh, thanks to Mary, I am relatively familiar with a lot of the content. So um, if I, I might ask more questions than I might otherwise, but I'll just be obnoxious and ask questions about content if I need to. Well, maybe it could be a good thing because then it could be like from the outside perspective of having not read it, right? Your yep. role can be to not read the booklets and our role is to read them and then to talk about them. But I feel like I lucked into that kind of, <laughs> you just kind of stole it. Sorry. So person that shows up to the book club without having read the book. I love it. That was, I, I am. That's Stephanie. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about, like, the sacred subjects. So, like, these booklets are mailed to you or, or sold to you in a box like this that is sealed. You see, I broke the seal. I'm a parent. It's okay. I broke the seal. But there's, like, specific things that I want to discuss a little bit because I was having a conversation with Jimmy Hinton about these to a girl of 11. Okay. And, and, and I said, it's part of a series that's called the sacred subjects. And Jimmy brought up a really good point. He said that it almost seems like they call it the sacred subjects because this means that it's ordained by God. So mm -hmm. I'd like to ask each of you, like, do you feel that that affects the way and, and the type of authority and power that people give these booklets because of the title, the sacred subjects? Well, absolutely. And not only that, but because of the way that the 
system of which plain people operate, whatever the church, the leaders of the church say is, or uh, is already from God, almost like a priest um, in the Catholic church. Like they speak for God. So yeah, I do. I think people put a lot, place a lot of um, authority on that. And you, Stephanie? Oh, I don't know how it couldn't. I mean, anytime, like, all of the the ideas about gender and sex and um, relations between different genders that are in these books are conveyed as though they are from God. They are, like, the language, you know, in the parts that I've read, the language is, this is what God, the, these are God's plans for girls and boys. These are God's plans for men and women. This is what God wants to happen in marriage. Like it's inescapable. So I think that amps up the aspect of, of, you know, abuse big time because just consuming these books, which are like full, I mean, again, I've only read parts of them. But the parts that I've read have been so violent in what they, in their logical conclusions that like, I don't know how you can come away from consuming this and not come away with the message that like God either wants you to abuse the women and children in your life or God ordains that you be abused. And if you don't, if you don't do certain things that will be worse, you know, you're muted would be helpful if I unmuted myself. <laughs> you know, look, I just need more coffee. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. People have petted my peeves this morning. It's great. I love it. Um, but do you think that that could also possibly play into the role of like, well, this, this, like, it's better, the mentality of like, it's better to suffer here on earth because you're suffering for Jesus. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I have to wonder, like, if you're listening to this, I wonder what you think. Do you, like, feel free to share your perspectives as well, either in the comments or whatever. So what we did is we have this book, I Wish I Could Have Confided in My Parents. And, and Lori and I read it, okay? I made notes. I made a whole bunch of notes. But the first thing that I wanted to ask Lori is this. So where it says a note to parents, this booklet was written for parents. It is not suitable to be read by children or young people. Well, the... <laughs> okay, so why, why do they, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be as dense as I can. Lori, why would they say that? Like, what, what is that? I don't understand why children can't read this. Please explain it to me like the total outsider to plain culture that I am. Well, and it's written at a, like, middle school level. So it's not like children couldn't understand it. Um, I think it goes to the concept that they want it, it to be taught. The parents control all the narrative. Um, and they're given, I mean, in the book it says... Um, it's God's will. It's like, God, I, I forget how it's worded. I know Mary has probably has the wording, right? You know, but, 
<laughs> we'll get to that. It's, but it says it's, something it's, about it's the it's correct way is for the parents to teach this information. Um, and I get like some things should be like children don't have access to, but it does make you wonder why they're so secretive about everything. And I don't really Here. know. Let me let me read you a page page 25 of this booklet. There was no wonder the great sex education experiment in the world has failed so miserably. It had so many things against it. It never stood a fair chance. Not only did it attempt to impart cold facts alone, apart from any teachings of morals and religion, but it was also being done by the wrong people. The world's reasoning was that sex should be taught in school because teachers could be trained how to handle the subjects and were thus in the best position to teach it. How utterly wrong. Man cannot improve on God's plans, and it is God's plan that this subject should be taught to children by their parents. If anyone else does it, it's only second best. That is why this book is written to parents and not to children. This subject is the responsibility of parents. It is not the responsibility of schools or even of the church. It is fitting and in place for ministers to encourage and remind parents to give their children the proper teaching. But it is then in the parents' place to do it. There you have it. Right there, black and white. That is horrifying. Like, also, like what goes through my head is hey, like, Jacob. you just made this up. You just made this up. You wholeheartedly just made up this rule and said God said it. So my question is, is and, and and maybe I missed something because, you know, I am of of the, the weaker sex, according to them. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I can't I can't properly comprehend things and I just have to look to men for guidance. But you know, I, I have studied the Bible and I have literally never read that in the Bible. So I'd like to know where it is in the Bible that this is at. And if anybody can provide that information to me, please do, because I'd love to be proven wrong. Yeah. Also, even if it were in the Bible, it would be stupid. I like, I realize I'm a heretic for saying that, but like, it's just stupid. It's a stupid rule that someone made up because it consolidates their own fucking power. Sorry, can I swear on here? Stephanie, how many times have you been a guest on my podcast? I never remember. And we always have this conversation. We do? I allow people to express themselves in ways that they feel safe. Okay. Well, I feel safe saying that that is some fucking bullshit. <laughs> well, there you have it. Stephanie has spoken. <laughs> Furthermore, you know, before we even get into the book, there's still more that I want to discuss a little tiny bit. Um, you know, it says, put this booklet inside a lar Wait, first. We strongly suggest that this booklet not only be kept in a concealed place where children will not be apt to come across it, but that you take measures to prevent their reading it in case they should come across it. Put this booklet inside a large brown envelope that can be sealed shut. Mark the envelope clearly that it is not to be opened. You will greatly reduce the temptation for a child or a young person to read it without permission. <laughs> if he or she knows, you will see the evidence that someone has been reading it. If you have suggestions or comments on this booklet or any of the others in this series, we would welcome hearing from you. The author. They would welcome hearing our podcast. 
I double dog dare somebody to have them <laughs> listen to this podcast. Also, we don't know who they are, do we? Isn't well, we don't know who they are. We don't have contact information for them. We have no idea how to contact them or give them feedback. Also, so that's really met, interesting. Have they met children? Have Do you know, like, since when has seeing something that says do not read or open made you not want to open or read it? Like greatly reduced, <laughs> or without just the exception to the rule. I mean, I kind of feel like that's actually the exact opposite. If you are open about things, yes. children tend to be more matter of fact about things. Mm -hmm. But if you are secretive and you refuse to talk about it, and you refuse to be open about it, children are more curious and they're going to go seek information because curiosity is part of human nature. It is. And we should not be squashing that in our children. That's how humanity evolves, is by encouraging curiosity, by learning new ways, by learning new things, and by being open about tough subjects. I mean, I don't feel like sex is a is the toughest subject that I've had as a parent. But you know what's tougher for me? What? Interpersonal relationships. Yeah, I yeah. mean, and you start teaching kids about healthy sexuality by teaching them about respecting other human beings and consent. And like, like long before they're old enough to grasp what sex means for adults, they can start to learn, here's how you respect other people. Here's how you say, no, I don't like that. Like, that's where you start developmentally. But I feel like all the literature that you show me that comes from, from claim communities is about over, like, attempting to override what is developmentally normal by just by just beating it out of people like that's not how humans work that creates cycles of abuse yep and it so, seems quite obvious really <laughs> i mean maybe it seems obvious because you've had access to more information but to people who have not had access to information they need to hear that so thank you for sharing that but going back to the book, is there something you would like to start off on, Lori? Because I have like pages of notes we'll here. With your notes. <laughs> <laughs> I would hate to interrupt that. All right. Let me say hi, Jacob. And hi, Cora. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you. Um, okay. Note number one. Um Let's talk about page five, where it talks about the great sex experiment. So the, that term is used frequently throughout these series. And I'm really baffled because it goes into this idea that change is bad. And, and then there's story time. There's, there's, there's a lot of story time. And for people not familiar with like Amish culture, it is very normal for you to be receiving information through per se parables, stories, 
And and so I thought it was interesting too that these booklets are written in that same format because that is culturally normal. But then to talk about the great sex experiment, like what do you think of that term? It's really weird. I'd never heard of it before. Oh, I had heard of it before. I heard of it before. When I was a child, I heard of it. Because because your parents read you the book? Or not read you the book, but talked to you about it? I mean, but like, that's like, but but here's another thing is like, you were Mennonite and I was Amish. Right. Think about that. Right. Yeah. So we have a comment that says, at the root of all this is the core belief in these communities that children and women are property. You can do what you will with your own property. Thank you, Josh. Yeah. That is, yeah, that is that core belief. But I think like the way when you, when you consider it, for me, it's almost like the great sex experiment is a sarcastic, mocking way of talking about teaching kids consent and about sex and, and that's how I feel about it. I, I had to ask myself, like, is he, is he really being sarcastic? Because I feel like he is. As a sarcastic person myself, <laughs> entirely too relatable. Like, I mean, like, when you think about it, like, I would consider the great sex experiment to be with purity culture. And yes, that's absolutely like, I will say that sarcastically all day long. But in the same token, like, I found that very interesting. Do y'all have thoughts? I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie. <laughs> all right, questions. Question time from Stephanie. What you got? Well, I mean, I'm curious when this was written. Do we have, do we know oh, when it was written? Question. Because they've been around since you were a kid, Mary. Well, I was a kid. It says reprinted in 2018. I don't know when it was written. Okay. It was published by Pathway Bookstore, by the way, in Bloomingdale, Michigan. Oh, I have, mine was reprinted in 2020. So. Oh, yours are a newer version. This could be very interesting. Beating this dead horse. Um, I also found it. <laughs> I uh -huh. that changed much. <laughs> well, I also found it interesting that they talk about the great sex experiment and then they label it as like information without morals. Like, there's scientific facts. I mean, I I also just don't like coming from the English world where, <laughs> like, I'm I'm still trying to figure out what. Thing in the English world, the great sex experiment is referring to. And I feel like it, I feel like it depends on when those words were actually written. Because I mean, I grew up in the 1990s. I'm 46. I was born in 1976. I grew up during like the sort of blossoming of purity culture. Mm -hmm. And like the the battle between conservative Christians to keep sex ed and or keep sex out, out of school or make it abstinent abstinence only sex ed mm -hmm. and like I mean I grew up going to sex ed at school it's not like they were teaching like in 1993 1994 when I was in high school they weren't teaching us about consent they were teaching us like what happens biologically in order like whatever they were teaching us about puberty like my my sex ed teacher was a gym teacher he was okay. a big dumbass who told like 
said a lot of really offensive things. But like, the problem isn't that they were teaching sex ed. The problem is that patriarchy and like rape culture is everywhere. And some of what they were teaching us was rape culture. But the idea that like the whole, the source of the problem is that the teaching was com was not coming from parents and instead it was coming from the public schools. No, that's ridiculous. I mean, at home, people were learning equally destructive or more destructive things. Mm -hmm. So I don't like when they talk about the great sex experiment, I think they're just they're just creating an idea of what they think is happening in popular culture and building a straw man that they can argue with. Can I can I tell you what they write about it? Yes. After they tell their story of a Model T car. Okay, as long as I'm not cutting off Lori, because Lori, I don't, I don't mean to. You've actually read the book, so. No, no, I yeah, it does seem like an ambiguous concept. But what I also noted about it was the fear mongering and the inaccuracy of information, because it says literally it was a giant flop and a tragic mistake. Rape and incest have increased. Teenage pregnancies have increased. Homosexualities have increased, whatever that means. Okay. Unhappily marriages have increased. Okay. Um, it has not worked. No problems have been sol solved. Morally, things are worse than ever. Um, and then why it was failed is uh, because education without morals. But like the, the really disturbing thing was that the fear mongering was like, and was like something about, it's even to the extent that like parents, if children wanted Hold to, or they would watch. They, they, it's, it's like fathers have come to feel that when their nearly grown daughters wa wanted to watch them bathe, they owed it to them to let them watch in order to satisfy their curiosity. What the? Okay. Who, who thinks that is okay? If you think that is okay, you are the problem. I'm here telling you, you are the problem. It's you. Hence why I said fear mongering because they're you. And, and furthermore, in the same paragraph, sorry. They go on and they say some parents have invited their children to watch them having intercourse. But continue, so Lori. Sorry. Out, I'm saying he because I know it was written by a man because it was plain. It was an Amish minister. Amish ministers are always men. So it was yeah. a man. I mean, I knew yeah. obviously they would listen to a woman. So I knew it was written by a man. So I'm just going to say he. But, um, you know, like, so those might be some outliers that have happened. Of course, I'm sure that's happened somewhere but he's making it seem like it's the majority of the population because of this so it's like it's yeah. completely asinine it's also stereotyping and it creates bias yeah which means that I, when I, we I, go ahead i feel like this is too like it it is like pure fear-mongering because a like it is not historically situated in any way like it's not clear again it's not clear right. what the great sex experiment actually is we can have some theories but it's just like this is how like conservative christian clergy has like stoked the the fires of of hate and bias and distrust since you know like for hundreds of years really i mean we could talk about different historical periods and different kinds of clergy but the idea that like out there in the world, people are fornicating in the streets. You can't walk down the street without seeing people screwing, like the family, everyone's screwing all over the place. And that is, that is just, again, that's something that 
is a really powerful rhetorical tool when you want everyone in your community scared of what's outside so that you have more control over them. Correct. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and the closest way that I can describe the great sex experiment is also this, um, the great sex education experiment on page seven, where we started talking about the fear mongering. And before that, it says the modern view has come to be that parents should tell their children everything. They should not make sex and reproduction seem like something dark and sinful and mysterious. It is a natural part of human nature, just like eating or sneezing. Okay, part of that is true. But the thing that they fail to be truthful about is the fact that it is not that you should tell your children everything. You should teach your children age and gender appropriate information. Yeah. And that does not mean that you are telling your three-year-old like how sex works. Yeah. We're showing them sexually explicit images. Right. images that is actually a crime to show your kids sexually explicit images yeah so like it's it's all tied in together and it's a very effective way of shutting people up and silencing children and silencing the marginalized in those communities <clears throat> yep so anyways, do we have it? Go kids, ahead. These kids would have been better off taught sex education in school by someone who wasn't biased toward their race. Mm -hmm. They they would have been. Mm -hmm. And like I'm I'm realizing right now, I don't think we're gonna get through all my notes today. I was I kind of knew that from the beginning. <laughs> I had a feeling, I had a feeling, but I'm going to do this every month. Like if like you would like to join us in discussing these books, please let me know. And you're welcome to hop on here and discuss the books um, because there's a lot to be um, talked about here. So like my next note is on page 10. It says like, no man can give what he does not have. And, and they give this whole parable again about the man who doesn't have a wife and so he can't like send his wife to go cook for the king because the king was seeking a new cook. And I love how there's like this, this king, like we, you, we, we have been in America for how long as Amish people? We have not lived in a country where there was a king for how long? And yet we're still writing parables about kings. I found that very interesting and I'm not quite sure why. Ideas? I didn't even think about that. Maybe because a king is authoritarian and that's how Amish men view you know, their leadership. Um, I don't know. It is possible. That's my thought too. And then... He further talks about many parents suffer from a subconscious feeling that sex is unclean. They've accepted it, but they regard it as a baser side of life. It is something to feel ashamed and embarrassed about. 
And then on the next page, there's like talking about all oh, God's gifts are good. It is the abuse of them that are wrong and sinful. There's nothing unclean or disgusting about the way that we were made. Um, it, if we feel that sex is dirty, it is surely necessary that such thinking should be changed. And don't blame yourself for feeling that way. But my question is, is like, how can you not feel that way when you are taught that your body is, doesn't belong to you? And that information about sex is so dangerous that it's in an envelope that says, do not open. I mean, talk about mixed messages. Mm -hmm. Right. And that was the only part of the book that I actually agreed with as far as like, the him them st stating that sex isn't dirty etc however the reason that people feel that way is because of the way that it is discussed so how do people even feel okay to have sex when those are the messages that they're getting and worse there are other you know like all the things about you know we haven't even gotten to the part where it talks about how your body belongs to your spouse. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> yeah. And, and when you say, when you say that, you know, one of the reasons to have sex is because like your body belongs to your spouse. Like where is your bodily autonomy? Where is your ability to give consent or withdraw consent? Where is your ability to have any form of fucking consensual relationships? It doesn't exist. Where, Where is the space for you to have a consensual, healthy relationship with your intimate partner? Right. Because, yeah. I mean, yeah. And furthermore, at the Amish Abuse Awareness meeting that I was at, the very first one, Somebody asked the question, what should we teach our kids? And I am not kidding you when I say this is the response that was given by the ministry and the leaders. Kino, misalana, fasi shema, unshafa, hot shafa. And when you translate that, it means children must learn to be ashamed. And it actually loses something in translation. Because Shema means like several different things. But to be ashamed is the best translation I can come up with. Mm -hmm. And the other part is they must learn to work hard and to work harder. So how is that teaching them to not be ashamed of sex? It's not. There's the word shame or ashamed shouldn't even be used in the context of discussing sexuality. No. Shame also, doesn't, I mean, I could go on a whole tirade about shame, which I will not, but just reference for my brain. <laughs> no, what shame is and does to a person, but it's not good. Yeah. Not no. good. At all. No. Yeah. And then further, where does that prevent any? child sexual abuse from happening or any sexual abuse from happening. It doesn't. It, it, it helps create the conditions that make sexual abuse possible and easier to hide. I mean, that's not 
it's and that's not complicated either, which makes me think that at some level, some of the people who are teaching these things are doing it deliberately because the best way to keep a culture from changing is to keep doing the same violent things to children. And that's, you know, I just want to say to, to people who genuinely want to change, you really do have to start with your kids. You have to change the way you raise your kids. Because by the time you're 18, if all you've been taught is, is shame and secrecy, and when you ask questions, you're punished, and your questions themselves are sinful, like, you spend your adult life undoing that. You don't, like, like it, it's really hard to be to get over being raised like that and then become an agent of cultural change. And look, look what the Amish do to people who challenge. <laughs> They're not in the culture anymore. I mean, you're, you're, you know, Mary, you're on the outside, like helping people on the inside and people on the outside all over. But like, you're, you're dealing with the aftermath of constant violence. Like that is like, if, if they want to sustain that pattern, this is a great way to do it. Keep teaching your children to be ashamed of absolutely everything. That will keep your culture immobilized. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. By controlling information. By yep. controlling access to information. By making sure that people don't have information that could lead them to be doing better with their kids. Right. And discrediting anyone who is outside of the culture in the, all of the ways that we've discussed and other ways that they do that. Yeah. Uh, I just love being called names. I also love hearing about myself, y'all. I can only imagine the things you hear about yourself. If I only did half the things. Right. How, you would <laughs> I would lead such an interesting life. <laughs> That should be your next book. All the things, the the um, and the um, things. the things, things I never did. Things, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, like it just it just seems like these booklets to me, I feel like are part of the reason why I feel like it's a predator's paradise. Mm -hmm. When you when you think about it, it's using these authoritarian stories, using these tales of authority, and always it's on the the women are the weaker vessel. They are to submit. They are to raise children. They are to fulfill this role that has been predestined for them. Women do not have necessarily the ability to step outside the roles that they are supposed to play. And so when they don't have that ability, where do they get access to information? When their voices are given to them by the men in charge of them. When when they don't have freedom to speak openly, when they don't have the ability to access resources or to access information. So what can we do? And I feel like part of what we can do, we're doing right now. We're talking about what is in this booklet and we're going to go through these booklets every month. I can't do more than once a month because y'all, these booklets are... It's, it's a lot. It's a lot to read through. It's a lot to digest. It's, it's a lot.
But that's, that's one place we can start, is by having open conversations about the teachings, what they do, what the effects are, and how we can do better. Yeah. And let me just tell you, how do you feel about the Christian purity and, and purity, the letter? The letter. Oh, I don't remember what was in the letter, but... It's on page 13. Okay. Um... I think I noted any. Oh, I just, yeah, I didn't notice anything about that. I didn't, I don't know if I read the letter. I think I did, but um, I know I definitely talk, um, noticed about the, how they, they talk about masturbation as perversion and self-abuse. Oh, yes. And, and they turn to perversion as in homosexuality. Mm -hmm. They turn to adultery and extramarital affairs. That's what we're calling raping children now. Yep. I mean, I'm, I'm not even being sarcastic. I'm being truthful. That is what I witnessed is people saying it was extramarital affairs when really it was raping children. Mm -hmm. And homosexuality, if a man is raping a boy, that is not necessarily due to homosexuality. That is possibly also like you have to understand that abuse happens because of power and control. And when you sit here and you teach this idea that men are the ultimate authority and women can't possibly comprehend the Bible, you are actually literally sitting there and teaching men that if they want power, they need to take that power. And they're going to get that power from whomever they can. Children are by nature vulnerable, they are susceptible, and so they are easy targets. They are easier targets than adults. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is enough to make one sick. I will agree with you. I will agree with you on that one. Yeah. And furthermore, when you also teach men that the reason that you feel attracted to a woman is because of how the woman dressed. You are literally teaching men that they have no control over themselves. You are teaching men that they are like animals. Oh, it's a natural thing to have those, but you know, it's the women's job to police their modesty up so that they don't inadvertently cause their brother to stumble and lust and sin and, you know, self-abuse themselves because it is so intertwined and twisted. I don't, mm -hmm. as opposed to teaching that, what should we teach, Stephanie? Well, I don't want to cut off Lori. She was going to say something. I was just going to say that, you know, having grown up, with that, all of that stuff, and even though we didn't have the booklets, like it was still the same messaging. Um, it's hard to undo that. It's very hard as I'm 45 years old and do not subscribe to these beliefs in any way, but it, it is hard to get them out of your, like they still pop up at times. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. One of our commenters says that burns a fire in my gut, right? It's a very good way of putting it. That's why I can't do this more than once a month, y'all. Yeah. I, I mean, I think coming from 
I mean, I, I come from an Anabaptist background. I mean, in, in case anyone watching doesn't know me, I come from like Mennonite Church USA, like assimilated liberal mainstream Mennonites. Institutional. Um, institutional might be one way of putting it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I always like chafe a little bit with the liberal Mennonites because within Mennonite Church USA, we have like a whole range. <laughs> I'm saying we as if I'm still a member. I'm not, but um, it is definitely my my cultural background, but like I went to public school, like I didn't, I did not grow up in a separatist community. You looked and, normal then? What? You looked normal. Is that what you're trying to yeah, say? I looked normal. She's trying <laughs> to say that she had access to information like normal people. I did. I did. And I, I was allowed to read whatever I wanted. And I think what I guess I'm just trying to get my mind around what these books are teaching women specifically about their ability to like want sex and experience sexual pleasure. Because on the one hand, um, there's, you know, your bodies are holy. You shouldn't be ashamed of them. On the other hand, it's like your husband needs sex and it is your job to give it to him however he wants it and whenever he wants it because otherwise he will stray and have sex with other people who may be children and it's your job to make sure he doesn't do that and it's like that is a message that is fundamentally incompatible with sexual pleasure <laughs> like it's not like i the idea that sex is a is a thing that is a woman's duty to give to a man so that he doesn't stray is, you know, I mean, it's part of a lot of fundamentalist Christian teaching. It's part of popular evangelical purity culture. It it's not, it's not like this is just the Amish and, and plain Mennonites by any means, but in our, what, <laughs> what I always hear conservatives refer to as sex saturated, sex obsessed culture that isn't Christian in, in, you know, like those of us who like go through life, don't go to church and still manage to not be fornicating in the streets all the time. Um, like, like there are plenty, like it, it doesn't have to be this. Okay, folks, it doesn't have to be this. I remember when I started, first started dating, um, and they were not Mennonite or, you know, Christian, not, it doesn't matter. I just assumed, like, that all they wanted was sex, that all they were trying to get was sex. I was the gatekeeper, because that's what I was taught. That just isn't reality. Yeah, and even as a therapist working with clients, like, the way that, you know, the Christian community talks about Oh, men want sex, women don't necessarily want it as much is not true yeah. at all. I've seen the reverse happen more than yeah. I can even say. Um, and it's just harmful. It's harmful to women. It makes women who do have a high sex drive feel ashamed or like something is wrong with them. Um, I mean, there's, and then not even to mention the whole consent thing and bodily autonomy. It's just all skewed. Um, and that messaging is really hard to reverse. Yeah. And I, I think it also causes, like, I, I think it causes sexual trauma to a lot of men, too, because they're taught that something really fundamental about themselves is, some is like, people who don't want to harm other people, which, you know, is still the majority of people. <laughs> yes. Like, 
people who don't want to harm other people are are going to be upset and traumatized when they're taught, you know, at age 10 or 11 or 12, like the minute you get an erection, you're basically a sexual threat to every girl around you. No, that is so debilitating. And that creates utterly dysfunctional relationships, you know, with other people and, and with yourself. Mm-hmm. Like that is a really good way to create a lot of shame and trauma in, in men and boys too. It's just like, there's no, there's no tolerance for diversity around what people want sexually in this kind of culture. And it's like outside in like the English world, like I I'm looking in and, and to me, Amish, Amish and plain Mennonite cultures, um, much like, concert you know fundamentalist baptist cultures and other like they seem hypersexualized to me yes like coming from like i you know i'm somebody who like lives in a a world that would be seen as hedonistic and decadent and all i don't know what all adjectives would be put on it um i mean it's not but it would be seen and i don't i i look at it and i'm like what when a two, like there's, there's nothing whatsoever abnormal about a three or four year old just tearing off their clothes and running all over the house. There's nothing sexual about it. It's a normal thing for kids to do. Like yeah. the parents in my circles are always joking that they can't get their kids to keep their clothes on. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing sexual about it. It's developmentally normal. And yet, like, I imagine that happening in a plain community and there would be like, it would become all about sex with these kinds of teachings. Like or we don't, worse, people don't sexualize babies. Right. Or worse, you know, children do start, you know, touching their genitals at certain ages. And it mm-hmm. doesn't mean that they're masturbating or anything, but the these communities would shame them a hundred percent where it's just normal. <laughs> That's another whole topic, but it is related. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all related. It's, it's literally all related. It all comes together. Okay, someone asks, how can they ever have healthy sexual relationships? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because furthermore, and this is probably where we're going to leave this at, um, in that letter, first we talk about the abuse, and then we talk about or, or the self-gratification, masturbation, homosexuality, all of those things. Then we talk about in the letter... We know that sex is wrong outside of marriage, blah, 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 blah. But then within marriage, it is right. And the Bible teaches us at least three reasons why it should be practiced. Oh, boy. Here we go. Yeah. Here we go. My mom pinched me and stick me with a pin if my dress went above the knees. Right. Like this, this, these teachings actually lead to abusive practices. Yes. You, you did not deserve that, but thank you for sharing that. Like yes, it's, sure that, that is abuse. What you just, it is abuse. That is abuse. It leads to abuse of children to teach people these kinds of things. But let's talk about the reasons for sex within marriage. There's three reasons y'all. Are y'all ready? As ready as I'll be. <laughs> Reason number one. So children can be conceived. Right. There's a whole lot of word salad, quoting several Bible yep. verses. Yep. Okay. Reason number two. 
The second purpose, and I quote to you on page 16 of this booklet, the second purpose of sex within marriage is to decrease the temptation to sexual impurity. The man should give his wife all that is her rights as a married woman. And the wife should do the same for her husband. For a girl who marries no longer has full rights to her own body. For her husband has rights to it too. And in the same way, the husband no longer has full right to his own body, for it also belongs to the wife. So do not refuse these rights to each other. The only exception to this rule would be the agreement of both husband and wife to refrain from the rights of marriage for a limited time so that they can give themselves more completely to prayer. Afterwards, they should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt them because of their lack of self-control. I've never understood that scripture. That is a hot load of nonsense. Like, <laughs> like just there's so many internal contradictions in whatever the hell that was. How is anybody supposed to? I can't. It's a hot load of seeming garbage. 1 Corinthians 7, 26. Uh, Paul realized that not everyone is alike. Some have stronger temptations than others. So he says that overall, it is best for each man to have his own wife and each wife to have her own husband. And he finds it necessary to point out that once they are married, they must not refuse to give themselves to each other, lest the temptation become too strong, again, to practice self-abuse or some other form of sexual impurity. So you should get married so that you don't have sex or so that you can have sex. So I feel like this causes people to get, I've seen this a lot with purity culture where people get married that maybe shouldn't or sooner than they should, or maybe because maybe if they'd stayed together longer, they would have realized they shouldn't get married, but so that they can have sex. And I just find that completely appalling. Yeah, It is absolutely horrific. Um, I also want to point out, like, if you want to go back there to where Paul was writing, for example, if you talk about where Paul was writing and in what context he was writing, if you literally just even think about that, that was hundreds of years ago. That was thousands of years ago, like 2000 years ago. So what kind of environment was society at that point in time versus what, where has, has society evolved to at this point? Well, and also it's like, I feel like this, like, I feel like you would be accused of sinning just for, for saying that we should look at what Paul said in the historical context. Like so much of this feels like a rebellion against like, Like it's a a desire to keep things static when that's not how human beings work. Um, Well, well, Stephanie, I might have been called rebellious a few times. I don't know how you not, I don't know how you don't rebel in a place this controlling. I mean, like, like so much of this stuff seems to be about creating internal disciplinary mechanisms. Yeah. I heard that a lot growing up the devil. Sometimes the devil makes you, okay. Yeah. So you're always worried about being tempted by the devil or doing something like, and and you're going to be, yep. you're going to be disciplining yourself 
and mm-hmm. feeling shame and always feeling like you're doing something wrong. And that creates people who are easier to control. And then those people get married very, very young, as one of our listeners says, was married young to have sex because that's what we are taught. That's what we are trained. That's we are told our, our life path. Don't worry. There's a third reason, too. Right. Wait, wait. Let me let me read this comment. You have to rebel to survive and grow and become a better person. Right. Like if you want to become a better person, if you want to learn better ways to navigate throughout life without like harming people, you have to rebel. It's almost like a given. Mm-hmm. But let me let me let me go to the the mother of all the ultimate reason the holiest reason of all that people should have sex within marriages are y'all ready yeah (laughs) (laughs) the third reason now that we've heard that it's for procreation and it's to prevent self-abuse and sexual impurity and homosexuality right we we have like that's okay The third reason God has ordained sex within marriage is to build the bond of love and attraction between a man and wife. I know of a husband who feels that sex is only for procreation. Therefore, once his wife is pregnant, sex would be wrong or after her childbearing years are passed. They have a very sad and unhappy marriage. Can we just, let me, I'm I'm sorry, the it's not love. Did the chicken come first before the egg? Like, you is the cart first and then the horse? Like, I, it is such a profoundly unloving way of understanding long-term part, like life partnerships. The idea that, like, the only way that so for one thing, they've laid out that you don't have autonomy over your own body. You don't possess it. Like when regardless of what you feel, you have to give to your partner when they want it. And then and then they're also saying, if you don't do that, like that's how you build love. So uh-huh. if, if you're if you're somebody who is basically submitting to marital rape repeatedly, and that's how you're supposed to show love is by submitting to rape. I mean, I'm sorry. That is part of why we're here today talking about this. This is not what love looks like. Love does not look like this. Well, it's fear-based too. Like imagine having sex with your husband so that he doesn't have sex with someone else or, or you know, assault someone. You know? Go out and find intimacy with the harlot. Because, you know, that's also mentioned in this booklet. A harlot. Like, come on, let's be real. Don't worry. Don't worry. There's, somebody- there's more. We also got the ruling that, remember the authoritarian control? Yeah. During the days of the Roman Empire. Can I just come in for a second? Yeah. They, Sorry. Like, the harlots are people, and I shudder to think how some of these men treat sex workers. Right. Like, there's all there's this whole strain of, like, the shadow side of purity culture is... Oh, well, just let them go out and get their violence out with prostitutes. No, like I want I want everybody who cares about decency in plain cultures to stop talking about whores and harlots and fallen women Thank because they're you. people, too. They're people. 
And sometimes you drive people out of your own communities and they end up going into sex work because they, they have no other place to turn. And that is on these communities to survive. End of soapbox. Thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> Tired of seeing people shit on sex workers. Um, yeah. No. Like that needed to be said. We, I feel like there's this codependency that gets normalized in the idea of marriage or relationships in the Bible as well. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, this codependency. So when you start thinking about codependency, so there's like this form of like toxic codependency where like when when you get married and you have this clearly defined role as like you're supposed to be a, a homemaker, a child rearer and a child bearer and, and you're supposed to like cook and clean and garden and sew and bake and blah, 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 blah. And then of course, you know, you always got to give up sex to your husband because that's, you know, your, your role. When you're told that those are your roles, where do you have the skills to go outside of your community to be able to survive. I think that's what Stephanie was getting at is what skills do you have to survive? How do those skills translate to a world where it isn't hypersexualized, where your every action isn't exactly hypersexualized? Yeah. They don't. They don't. And I'm lucky because I didn't. I experienced um, people who were willing to walk with me in ways that felt supportive when I did escape. But oftentimes people escape and they have nowhere to go and they have nowhere to turn and they have nobody to walk with them. And they don't know how to survive. So they do what they have to do to survive. So maybe before you judge those people, you might want to think about what you've done to put those people in that position in the first place. As a community, as a culture. Yeah. But regardless, they further go into... Um, the, during the days of the Roman Empire, the rich and ruling class gave themselves over to a life of luxury. Because again, we, we're always talking about this authoritarian control. You know, people would fasa and dress a... Oh my God. Dress fancy? <laughs> fasa and fresa. Okay, this is, it's like people would feast... And, and they would eat their fill of food and wine and go outside and vomit into those troughs and then go, go back into feast. That really grossed me out, by the way. <laughs> I mean, but regardless, like now we're trust, you know, there's there's this whole other thing, but we're we're running out of time. So I think this is where we'll have to pick up next month in February. And again, I would like to like ask each of you if you have any messages for people who have been taught these messages what would you say to somebody who still lives in a culture like that good question not true <laughs> I just <laughs> um yeah like not every not everyone is hypersexual like you're being taught there you know 
find someone, find a therapist. That's going to be my go-to response. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. What about you, Stephanie? I think my message is pretty much the same. Like this stuff isn't true. It's made up to control you. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that there aren't, it doesn't mean that there's no wisdom in your community. It doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that there's no love. It's just, you're fighting against teachings that teach you to treat each other like property and objects. And it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. And yeah. there are many places in the world in which it's not that way. You don't have to settle for it. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I've had to really learn how to do is to learn to trust myself because you're not taught any anywhere. It's like a more global, you know, statement, but you're only, you're not taught to think for yourself. And I still struggle with it sometimes. And I'm 40, 45 years old and I've been out of the community for 20 years. Um, it's hard. It, like, it's still hard sometimes to know that I can actually have my own thoughts. I know it sounds silly, but it was just ingrained in my head. Like if I would ask questions, even in my own home, it's because we said so. And that's just not okay. So learning to trust yourself that you do like listen to your gut. It's something I try and teach my clients. It's something I try and teach myself to do more of. Yeah. Thank you for that. Those are really important messages. And I would echo that. I do also want to point out one of our commenters says you are not going to burn in a lake of fire for all eternity. Thank you. Um, I, I would like them to know all of those messages. And I'd further add to that. Like you are, are we're not saying that Amish and plain people are, you know, this book was specifically written by an Amish minister. We're not saying that people are not capable of intelligence. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that these teachings have led to harm being caused. They have led to children being abused. They have led to adults being abused. They have led to people having to do unthinkable things to survive. And I'm simply asking you to be open to receive new information and to be open to learn new ways to think about all of this to understand that abuse is about power and control and when you create a patriarchal hierarchy of power and control that is where an environment where abuse can thrive and be covered up and that is why it is so silenced in our communities and that is why we must talk about what hides behind closed doors and what's behind those curtains and you know, what's underneath our dresses? Like, let's talk about that. People ask me frequently, what's underneath an Amish dress? I don't know why they feel like it's their business, but let's talk about it. Let's talk about the fact that above all, we are human beings. Amish people are human beings and we are worthy of human rights and we deserve to live lives that are meaningful to us and we deserve to have access to information that allows us to be better parents than we thought we could be. And on that note, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. I appreciate you. Hope you all have a beautiful Saturday. And I'd like to also dedicate this book club to my brother that passed away. Today would have been his birthday. So thank you all.
thank you very much. Thank you to our Patreon subscribers for making this possible. I appreciate your support, and I will see you all next month. Thank you.